We're back. Happy spring. I want you all to know that I had suggested some bits and Andrew vetoed them. So we're not doing bits this season. We can do, I mean, we can do bits later. I just didn't like the one that you suggested. Um, I don't like, I don't like to sing. I'm not a singer. Wow. All right. Well, (laughs) we're starting off strong season two with a lot of hurtful feedback. Um, No, we're excited. We're really excited about season two. We have a great lineup of interviews and we have brand new bakes. Yeah. So today uh, we are, well, the bake we're doing was a Caesar salad pizza. Mm-hmm. So it was inspired by a half-baked harvest recipe we saw. Uh, we changed a couple things up, but um, the base recipe was, was delicious. It was phenomenal. Um, and instead of like a traditional like red sauce, it was a mix of seasonings and olive oil mm-hmm. as the, the layer between and then just mountains of cheese. It was yeah. so I, I made the pizza dough. It's like um, early in the day. It needed to rise for a couple hours. Um, and I used a New York Times recipe for pizza dough and mixed in some herbs that I thought would go well. Um, it was not as tricky as I thought. I think you can do it overnight too. So if you want to make a big batch of pizza dough and just use it during the week, you can just chill it in the fridge. Um, yeah, it was my first stab at pizza dough from scratch. It was delicious. I, I enjoyed Yay. it. And then, yeah, it was like that kind of olive oil mixture and what, some kale and yeah. uh, a big thing of mozzarella. Yeah, so the original recipe says burrata, but our local grocery store does not carry burrata, which is like a very fancy, fresh version of mozzarella. Um, so we use just a standard ball of mozzarella. Um, and so it, it goes like the pizza dough and you roll it out really thin, then the, the herbs and olive oil, um, and then the fontina and shredded mozzarella. And then you bake that. And then once that is almost all the way baked, you pull it out. And just for the last couple of minutes, you put the whole ball of mozzarella on the pizza and it just slowly melts down. So you get this like center of just a huge chunk of fresh mozzarella on your pizza. It was great. Oh, yeah. And then you top the whole thing with this kale Caesar salad. Mm-hmm. Um, so 10 out of 10 on that oh, one. phenomenal. Yeah, I, it, I really enjoyed uh, it. I heated some up the next day. And it was great because we used kale instead of like romaine. Um, When we reheated the pizza, it just sort of wilted a little, but kale is a really great like roasted vegetable. So Mm -hmm. instead of having like a sad, wilty salad, we just had great veg on top of the pizza. Yeah. Um, So definitely recommend that. Yeah. Um, I also highly recommend Dr. Lindsay Hamm. Uh, So Dr. Hamm is a lecturer at Purdue and she's actually an award-winning lecturer. Mm -hmm. So she just won a really prestigious award at the university level. So Purdue has been recognizing her for her teaching. And I think when you hear the episode, you'll see that come through. She is an absolute delight. Um, And she teaches about moral panics. Um, So she'll explain what that means. But I thought it was a really great episode for us because we're seeing a ton of moral panics in the news. Yeah, this is, I mean, we recorded this back in February, right? Yeah, it was right after the Capitol. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, January, I guess then. Um, Yeah, we we recorded this back January, February, um, and so we were kind of talking about that. But, you know, now uh, here in April, we've got another new cool little Nas X. Yeah. Little Nas X. I've never been (laughs) cool. 
Uh, but we've got another cool moral panic going on. So um, Everybody's worried time. about the children. Everybody's worried about Satan. How well, can you not be worried about children? Al? I guess not everybody, right? <laughs> it's, and we'll talk about this in the interview. It is really a small kind of contingent of people who are susceptible to moral panics. And moral panics center around children because it's the idea that I did really well in this society and society is changing. So what if my kids can't do what I did? So it's really like a white middle class phenomenon in the U.S. Mm. Um, And and you'll see this as different moral panics unfold. The the to do around Dr. Seuss, the the big panic about, you know, Lil Nas X twerking on the devil or well i guess he didn't i'm also not cool he did a lap dance which is different than twerking right um i don't think anyone thought we were gonna be cool but if you had any illusions we're starting out strong season two not cool right um but yeah so it's a tie it's it feels like one of those um conversations that's regrettably sort of always going to be tied yeah uh and sure enough it is so Yeah, so um, we give some tips on how to identify a moral panic, um, how to talk to people who are in the grips of it. Mm -hmm. Um, We also talk about sandwiches and that Lindsay and I do not understand them the same way that I think Andrew does. Yeah, the true moral panic to watch out for is people who don't like sandwiches. I just, Um, they look uncanny to me. They look fake because it's specifically the ones Andrew makes and, and... We'll post the next time he makes a sandwich. We'll post it to our Instagram. Um, if you're not following us on Instagram, we are at Proofing and Lies, um, spelled out uh, just the way we do in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, also, be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. So for every review and like we get, um, that helps more people find us. Um, so it's a super helpful way to help us spread the podcast. Um I guess be nice. Yeah. Uh, if I'm making requests, <laughs> say nice things about us. But well, I mean, uh, you know, the algorithm just thrives on clicks and in interaction. So even if you don't want to be nice, uh, we don't care. It still drives content. I care a um, little. I read them. <laughs> I do read them, so yeah. I care a little. Well, but this we're starting off season two with I think the uh, one of the best episodes because it's the one that I'm not in for most of. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, this one, I had a work emergency at the same time we were supposed to talk with Dr. Ham. So, uh, unfortunately, I missed out on most of it, but Elle, I think, does a phenomenal job. with the Oh, well, thank so. you. Well, you come in to talk about the hard-hitting sandwich, the sandwich news. Yes, exactly. Um, so. Yeah, well, and it proves that you are, in fact, a lawyer, because uh, mm-hmm. he was away in court. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, well, we are really excited to, to show uh, season two off. Yes. Um, we are doing a lot more on social media, um, so be sure to follow us on Instagram. Uh, we've been doing some lives and some videos, but largely to, to bring you here to this podcast. So you've yeah. done it. Um, we also recently started a, a TikTok channel also at Proofing and Lies. So if you're on TikTok, uh, be sure to follow us at Proofing and Lies. All right, guys. Well, thank you all very much, uh, as always, for listening. Welcome back. Hope you enjoy the second season. And without further ado, let's uh, hear from Dr. Ham. Yeah, let's get ready to panic. Hi, we're here with Dr. Ham of Purdue University. And Dr. Ham teaches social problems, uh, among other courses. Well, today we're going to talk about social problems because uh, we seem to have a couple going on. Um, and specifically, we're going to talk about moral panics. 
Um, and I think we're going to start with just the most basic question of all, which is, what is a moral panic? So I teach social problems from a very constructionist standpoint, where you see that there are all these troubling conditions in society all of the time. Um, but they only become social problems when people start saying, we need to pay attention to this, there's something wrong. Um, something is negatively affecting a group of people in society or society in general. And a moral panic um, is kind of this social problems claim where you have this outsized fear and concern about something that you think is harming parts of society, especially children. Um, and so you see this kind of outsized fear um, that the media is kind of inflaming, that politicians start talking to because people really want somebody to do something about this. Um, and then you usually see some kind of enforcement come down on people in society after people, uh, as people are concerned. What makes me think of the Halloween candy panic. Every year there seems to be a panic that there are going to be like glass shards in Halloween candy. And I know that there have been a ton of like preventative measures and you can like take your, your candy to go get checked at a police station, but there's not actually been a, a, a case of like razor blades in candy targeting someone outside of the family, right? Right, this is a really good point. There was one incident, I think in the 1970s, where a father was trying to do his kid in um, using a pixie stick that he adulterated. Um, and there have been some other cases where children have inadvertently ingested something, usually something in the house. Um, and But this has really become this outsized fear that adults, these kind of like scary, mean adults are trying to do something to our children or trying to hurt them in some way. So what would classify a moral panic? Can you tell when they're happening or is it retrospective? I think it's I think it's really hard to tell if a moral panic is happening um, because you you have all of this information, especially now with social media, where you're getting inundated with a lot of people being worried about something. Um, and so you really have to figure out what are there any empirical facts for this group is doing something negative or hurting society in some way? Can we measure this? Um, and then you also need to pay attention to who is making these claims and maybe why they're making them. Um, it's also important to look at how people are making claims that something is a problem. So the media tends to exaggerate things, especially negative news, um, because it gets more clicks or it gets more people to buy things. Uh, and so when we look at that, we also want to see, are you using words like epidemic or crisis to try to make people identify something seemingly unrelated to this thing that's harmful and you should be scared of? I'm also thinking of the Tide Pods. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That was an epidemic, right? That um, was an epidemic. This epidemic that, and that's one of the one of the ways that we look at moral panics. Um, so Stanley Cohen identified three, and Joel Best also talks a lot about moral panics. And so there are these kind of three things that we're worried about. And one is, are adults somehow exploiting children? Two is, is popular culture somehow manipulating children to be bad? And then the third one is, are the children already corrupted and doing something terrible on, in society? And so with this one, we're looking at Tide Pods as being something where children or teens have been corrupted, are being corrupted by social media. And so you see that fear of social media coming up again um, and kind of bubbling up through, oh no, they're all ingesting Tide Pods. But when you empirically look at how many people are ingesting Tide Pods, 
there might be a few, but those are really typifying examples. They're rare. They're not every teenager is going home and eating their laundry detergent. Uh, what was it? The forbidden ravioli. <laughs> I mean, they are pretty, but don't do that. Well, so I'm thinking about um, the recent string of conspiracy theories about child abductions um, and child trafficking and, mm -hmm. and kind of this idea that there's a, a global pedophile network. And I wondered, does this, what's, does this count as a moral panic? And what's the difference between a moral panic and conspiracy? Right. And so that's a really good question. Um, and it, so uh, Joel Best talks about there being kind of limits to this concept of a moral panic too, because when does a moral panic end? Like ha is, has this been volatile or has this been going on long enough that you could say that maybe this is actually a moral crusade? Um, and so moral crusades are less volatile and that they come up and they're usually spearheaded by some figureheads. Um, and so and you can identify those people and then they're kind of carried through the media for a long time. So like the anti-pornography crusade in the 1960s and 80s um, was really spearheaded by a, a Catholic priest who was very anti-porn. He was very scared that this was going to take the whole country down. Um, and so we saw that pop up. And then you have things like the fear of the gay agenda, um, which really popped up in the 1970s. And there's this fear that gay people are trying to recruit children into their cults and take over the world. Um, and so with this newer, there's this fear of pedophilia and of there being this like global ring of people who are trafficking children through Wayfair furniture numbers. Um, and I think it, this rises up over and over again. It used to be this concern about like white children being kidnapped and sold into slavery. And then, and we're worried about like these white female teenagers who are going and being kidnapped in other places. And, um, and so now I think we're, that we have this whole Wayfair conspiracy and this whole idea that these, this pedophilic ring is taking over the government. Um, and I, it's interesting because you have things like Jeffrey Epstein pop up too, where you have these, these really rare kind of cases that people can point to and say, but look, that was happening. Um, and then they can say that obviously that's evidence that this could be happening here too. Um, but I think it is a really good example of something that is either a moral panic or a moral crusade. So if it keeps going, I think we could say it's sustained. Um, and so it could be seen as more of a moral crusade. I think what's interesting about the Jeffrey Epstein example, and I think the danger of this current fixation is the, the Jeffrey Epstein case is largely, it's, children but it's it's teens it's like mm -hmm. 12 to 16 and the the kind of focus of especially QAnon is the idea that like toddlers are being stolen which is horrific uh conceptually but I think it it does a lot of damage to to the victims who are largely teenagers who who don't fit into this narrative I think and that's one of the things that we think about with looking at why is it harmful for people to be making these claims about sex trafficking when in reality a lot of people are saying that sex work is sex trafficking um, when those might be consenting adults and then there are people who are being harmed by this there are these teens who are being harmed by this um, and then we're not paying attention to them we're putting all of our resources in something that's easier to see or something that we find even that's easier to catch basically because it's other people doing this on a bigger scale.
when it's less ambiguous, I think. Not, and I would say that it's unambiguous, you know, to, to be engaging as an adult with a 16-year-old, but um, I think that it's so much more clear-cut to people that, you know, toddler trafficking is wrong compared to someone who's 14 or 15. And taking care of children is one of our core values, like um, something that we all over the world, that's kind of one of those universal values that you take care of kids and you highly value them. And it's something that we have very much centered in Western society as well, that kids are almost this kind of sacred thing that you need to take care of and to raise properly and they're the future of your nation. And so when you say that something is coming after these innocent tiny bundles of your future then you do get very upset that's one way to really key into people's emotions and make them super care like click on this and try to read more about it and try to get involved in it because they this has clicked something on for them that they're going to engage with right which which i think is fascinating to me because we do have documented cases in ice of children and infants being abused and of young teens and children being trafficked out of ICE detention centers, you know, we have, we have those, and that didn't generate the same kind of outrage, even though those things are true. Right. And I think there's, there's something about the moral panic about violent illegal immigrants going on right there. And so we know that's something that President Trump was really riling up around the 2016 election and then trying again in 2020 to make people think that there are these hordes of people who are coming into the country from our southern border and they're coming to hurt our white children, basically. Um, and so we have the media and Trump and these other supporters have really othered these children and see them as less worthy or as less human. Uh, and so it's not as concerning what's happening to them. It doesn't fit into this moral panic narrative that they have to be as worried about them. So it seems like, and, and maybe this is just the examples that I know of, it seems to be a very white middle class phenomenon, the moral panic. And I don't know if maybe there are other examples or is that a correct perception? I think you're right. I think this is something that is largely this kind of white middle class fear. And so the first moral panic that um, Stanley Cohen was documenting was the sphere of the mods and rockers in post-World War II Britain. Um, and so there were these two groups of kind of like teenage hooligans and um, they were being, some of them wore, like rode scooters and dressed very properly and some of them, uh, the others were like drove motorcycles and dressed in leather um, and they were kind of rival gangs and people were terrified of them in part because the media was writing stories about them all the time as being these really scary hoodlums who were like tearing up beaches and hurting people and so what stanley cohen found was looking at what there weren't actually that many incidences where these two groups were coming together and then the media was possibly falsifying interviews um, and was tying other kinds of incidents into the mods and rockers that may have not been related at all. Um, but so you had the middle class being terrified that, that something was happening to their youths um, and that their youths weren't going to be developing into like this proper next stage of middle class. Um, and I think you're right about these are fears that our white middle class children are not going to be able to become the kind of adults that we want them to be. 
Um, and so I think it's a lot of that protection of this is the status quo that benefits me and that I want to see for my white middle class children who are benefiting from what the world currently looks like. Um, and something is threatening that. And so we are going to be scared of it. There's a lot to unpack there. So much to unpack there. I haven't actually thought about how racialized these are before, um, but I think you're right. Thinking about um, like when I was in middle school, maybe high school, my mom uh, wasn't like overly panicked, um, but moms and I don't know of any dads who were worried about this were really scared of rainbow parties. Um, have you heard of these? Oh, I've heard of them. Yeah. So um, it was a very brief flash up. Um, of, of I, I'm sure other parents, like parents of different genders were worried about it, but of moms being really scared that their teenage girls were going to these parties and putting on lipstick of different colors and then making rainbows on male anatomy. Um, and so there's very little evidence that this happens at all, if, or maybe just a couple of times, um, but it, the, the media really hyped it up and people were scared that their teenage daughters were going to go do these parties and um they there was even a movie about it which i think was partly satirical i i know right <laughs> an interesting movie i can't imagine i can't imagine what the plot is i have a screenshot of a of it's like a young of a teenage girl putting on blue lipstick um that i put on that slide for class is like talking about moral panics and this is one that i definitely experienced in my lifetime <laughs> oh man <laughs> So there's so many fears about sex tied up in there, especially yeah. sex and teenage girls. Um, and I think that's why the QAnon conspiracy, they're, they're interesting because you have that pedophilia side of it. So you have that tie into sex and kids. Um, but you also have this moral panic over, I don't know, the core values of society, I guess is what we're seeing. And um, the kind of economic relationships that have benefited certain groups of people over others. And so they're all kind of tied together in this huge angry mass um, that we're seeing of all these different militias and people coming together. Well, it's interesting. Well, I, I saw someone commenting on this and I wish I remembered uh, the person's name, but they were talking about how so much of the violence that happened in DC in January was about perceived dangers and perceived insults and, and not really based in reality. And I guess I wondered, how do you get to the point where you see something that isn't real as a deadly existential threat? I think that's a, I think that's the big question right now, right? Is that no, so many election officials and so many political officials have come out and said, this election was not stolen. Um, you know, we counted these votes by hand and by, by um, machine. And we know that this is what the votes were and this is what this looks like. But there is this contingency of society. Um, and it seems like a lot of Americans, like a decent proportion of Americans feel like this election was stolen. And so how do you get to that Right. Five percent of Republicans. Yeah, that, that's huge. That, that that really suggests that we have people seeing reality drastically differently um, than other people. And so you come to this point where you're like, how do I know what's real? Um, and how do I know what to trust? And I think part of this is that we have very different, we are very siloed in what we're consuming. Um, and so you have this one group of people who's consuming a lot of very negative and 
intense rhetoric um, there that uh, over different kinds of social media. You had Trump get finally get got deplatformed, which I think is a really important part of how do we move past this. Um, if we can deplatform certain voices that are leaders in this, we know that that kind of works to help. Um, make people stop following them or not finding them as much. So we saw like Alex Jones was deplatformed. Um, and there's that initial flash of everybody's going to try to find, like, follow him on Parlor or wherever people are going right now. Um, but then as we've looked at Alex Jones and others that have been deplatformed, people that stops, like, significantly drops after a little while. Um, so I don't think I'm actually answering the first question that you asked in this one. Um, it's a hard question, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and I wonder how much of it is, it's not just about deplatforming, it's about de-algorithming. Uh, yeah. so, so much of, it's not just that they have a place to put their work, it's that because their work is controversial, it gets boosted up and artificially in, inflated by the algorithm. So it's not just having a platform, it's having an exposure machine. Right, right. What is YouTube going to tell you to watch next? Is it going to be InfoWars after you watch a clip from like BBC and then you watch a clip from Vice is the next thing that pops up InfoWars or Newsmax. Um, and then that gets popped in and it's almost, it looks normal. And I know that a lot of research on social media has looked at how Facebook is so different. And, and we were just talking about Instagram too, because you have all of this very normal information, all of this, all of this stuff that you like seeing, like recipes and books and pictures of kids and puppy videos and then InfoWars. And then like, and so it doesn't even pop out that much. It's just kind of like your normal feed. And then it becomes part of your availability heuristic. Like it's part of what you think about and can easily call up in your mind. Um, and so when one of these triggering events happens, um, where people are like, look, this one person did this horrible thing to a kid. There, there must be lots of these people doing these horrible things to children. Um, then your brain is like, well, yeah, because I saw that on my Facebook feed that that happened. So this must be something that's going on everywhere. Um, and yeah. Well, one of, the, one of the things, so I don't get my news from Facebook, but I do check what their trending news stories are. And their headlines are consistently incredibly misleading. Mm. Uh, so when QAnon was ramping up, one of the things Facebook was doing was running or, or promoting all of these articles about, you know, Georgia finds 38 missing children or Ohio finds, you know, 56 missing children. And when you click on the article, it's over the course of a month and the bulk of those children were runaways. Right. So it's not that they found a warehouse full of children, but that's what the article's title would suggest. And those kinds of titles are getting boosted by the algorithm. And most people don't click on news stories. So if you just want to see what's going on in the world, you would scan the headlines and it would support your idea that there are massive numbers of children who are being trafficked, which there are children being trafficked and that's horrible, but not not the way that QAnon's, you know, promoting it. Right. Do you think social media makes moral panics easier to, to come up? Or do, how do you think social media affects these dynamics? There's actually, so um, 
I'm sorry. I talked over you. Oh, no, no, no. That's okay. I'm, I was just saying they've happened long before the internet, but what does the internet do to this? Right. I think you're right. The, the moral panics have been happening for a really long time. Like you could consider the Salem witch trials a moral panic. Um, and so you can, you can apply this concept going back through history. But uh, I think when we're looking at social media and an article just came out by Walsh um, and they found that social media in their words unleashed an intensified collective alarm that basically all of these little tiny niche triggering events that people may not have paid attention to before um, get picked up by these by different pockets of people on the internet or who can frame it to be the most triggering to the most um, clickable um, and then it doesn't go away so if you really want to follow this if you really want to follow the, this wayfair conspiracy that people are trafficking children um then you on the internet are in charge of you can go and seek that information out and you can put that as something you want to see pop up and your algorithms are going to keep popping it up in front of you um and so i think it really does intensify the the kind of concern that we have and it really helps people connect with others they may never have connected with before like all across the country or even across the world um and so all of these little niche things that you could be concerned about you can find other people who are concerned about them too well the way the wayfair thing in particular i think is such a good example of that because it kicked off because someone on reddit said wouldn't it be wild if so it was a hypothetical scenario that somebody reposted and then it, the accusations went viral. And if you look at, so they were claiming that because Wayfair names its products like human names, mm. um, that you could match up missing children to those names. And so you were, you were actually buying, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But, but I mean, a cursory Google search would show you that some of the children they were claiming were being trafficked had been found, were runaways who were recovered, like had an active Twitter who were like, no, I have not been trafficked by Wayfair. So it seems like there's both too much information and no information when it comes to these things. And that's a really good point. Social media is like a fire hose of information that we're getting all of the time. Um, and you can log on. I mean, I can refresh my Facebook feed every five minutes and see new stories pop up. Uh, and so there's just so much you're trying to take in. And I think part of it is that so one of the things that we know as social scientists is that half of the battle of getting people to pay attention to something is really attaching it to some kind of culturally resonant theme. So like if you get people to think of this as this is attacking your freedom or this is hurting children, um, once you can do that with a story, then that's going to make it really pop out to people um, in, in this flood of information that you're getting. Um, but you still have all of this stuff coming at you all the time. So how would you recommend people navigate the fire hose of information? How do you kind of suss out sources? I have to say, I, I fall victim to this too a lot, where you see some kind of really attention-getting headline, you're like, what, that happened? Um, but first, you should always click in, well, unless it's a really not great source, maybe don't click on the malware kind of ones. Um, but if, if you see something and it's a headline that seems too good to be true, then definitely click in and see what is going on here, um, what are they actually talking about? Uh, and then it's really, I mean, I know everybody talks about this, but finding that same story, but from different sources that are either going back to the Associated Press,
us, like who, who initially reported this and how was it reported, um, and making sure that you're not just getting a bunch of things that are reporting off of the same misinformation. Um, so looking for that and then also paying attention to the framing of an article or the framing of a news story. And this is something I really stress in my social problems class that it's really important to see how these things are packaged because people are trying to, and it's, it's not bad or good. It's, it's, it's part of rhetoric. It's how can I persuade people to care about this or to click on this or to buy this? Um, and so you're going to use all of these tricks, all of these tools to make people want to engage with your material. So you're going to use words that are going to catch people's attention, like epidemic or crisis. Um, and you need to pay attention to what are the kinds of images that they're using. So like hashtag if they gun me down pointed out a couple of years ago that the media was using these really cropped images of young black men who had been shot by police to make them look more hostile um, and aggressive. And when you looked at the whole image, it was actually a, a kid doing something very sweet. Um, or if they had showed, like, picked a picture that where they were trying to, you know, mug for the camera instead of the picture where they were with their family. Um, and so looking at what kind of images are being picked what kind of colors are being used? What kind of um, music is being used is, is really important too, to kind of cue into how are your senses being pulled into this claim? And are people really trying to rile you up and get you to feel concern about this? Those are, those are very good tips. Thank you. That's uh, in line with some of the advice I give to my students. So I'm glad that that's, that's the consensus. Um, that's always good when somebody's like, that's what I tell my students too. It's like, oh, okay, good. Well, and I, I think a lot of people are news fatigued. And so when you tell them like, okay, well, you should look at more news actually. Right. Um, that, that can be um, frustrating because what people want is, well, just give me one that's unbiased. And it's like, well, I have very bad news for you. <laughs> right. So go to the Associated Press. Um, but other than that, you've really got to pay attention to how are these people trying, everybody has biases, right? Like we all have them, we're all in, including them everywhere. And so it's not that your biases are bad, it's that you need to figure out how people are using them and how they're shaping what they're giving you and what you're taking in. So other than maybe um, kind of more science literacy, how do we prevent moral panics? I should go back and say some biases are very bad. I should. Oh, yeah. <laughs> biases that dehumanize other people are very, we shouldn't have those. Um, we should try to actively work on those. Um, but other biases, you know, preferences happen for really uh, innocuous things. Uh, but how, so you just asked me, how can we stop moral panics? Right. Is there a good way to prevent moral panics or are they just something we have to accept as part of society? Ooh. I think as humans, we are, we want to protect things, right? We want to protect our values. We want to protect our children. Um, and I think that humans have emotions and you can't really tamp those out. Like we're never going to be able to tamp out all of the emotions of humans. I mean, I don't think we want to either. So I think that people are always going to have these really emotional reactions to triggering events. And the only way you could really stamp out those becoming widespread is to do, is to really regulate the media to make sure they're not letting that kind of thing happen. They're not exaggerating negative news or taking these negative cases and making them seem so much bigger than they are. 
And I don't think that's something that we're going to do in the U.S. because we value freedom of speech so much. Um, and so I keep coming back to this in my class, too, where the best that we can do is just educate everybody as much as we can to be an informed consumer um, because this information is going to be out there and people are always going to want you to click on their stuff and to buy their their stuff and to make them the, you know more of a household name um, so i think the best thing we can do is just become as educated as we can be so i guess my next question several newspapers have been racing each other to find bad outcomes with the vaccines to report, mm. you know, out of thousands of doses, this person, you know, got a lump on their arm, right? Uh, so it, it's almost ridiculous, the lengths to which different news places are going to, to show the adverse effects of the vaccine, which has actually shown uh, in studies to be equally or more safe than other vaccines. And so I guess, uh, sorry, that was a tangent. How do you talk to, so this is leading up to a very specific and selfish ask. Mm. So in the news feed, someone was sharing one of these articles about how someone had had an adverse reaction to a vaccine and said, and that's why I won't be taking it. Right. So how do you approach people who are in the moral panic? How do you talk to your friends and family that are in it? in deep they bought into the moral panic i think i mean the only thing that we can really and i know and this is so i also teach a class about giving speeches um and the theme of my class i've been developing it forever and i finally decided that the theme of this class is the power of stories so we so much as social scientists want data to change people's minds like if i just give you enough stats that this many people didn't have a reaction that should change your mind right like that should be enough where you say okay this is fine but the story of that one person getting a lump on their arm has just completely overwhelmed the empirical reality for a person um and so it, um, part of me wants to say you just you pull more data together and you just keep showing these more rational like see the world the way that we empirically know that it is um, but we know that stories are the way that we actually change people's minds. And so I think one thing I've been seeing a lot on social media is all, all of my friends in healthcare are getting like their first and second doses. And they, a lot of them are sharing that, you know, I have my dose and I haven't had any symptoms or people are sharing about their parents getting their vaccines and be like, they haven't gotten their, they haven't had any symptoms. And I don't know that they're enough to drown out the one or two people that get the lumps that are sought out. Um, but I, I feel like those stories of I got this and it was safe. And if you could touch people that way, then maybe that would help convince people. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Cause it, it's, I regularly engage with some people who are down the QAnon rabbit hole and it's really difficult to talk to them because they won't agree to what reality is. And so periodically I'll ask them, okay, so if you don't, if you don't believe in the CDC, where do you get your information? How do you think about what a reliable source is? Um, and they told me I was in a cult, which academics, maybe a little. Um, maybe a little. <laughs> right. So I think, I think there are people who are maybe too far gone to even agree on, on a shared reality. Um, but it seems like there are a lot of people in the middle or on the edge that, that could be talked down from that ledge. And I think, um, and I've been wrestling this for, for years now because I teach, 
Um, this class is um, mostly for engineering and business majors. Um, and so you've got this room of 30 18 year old engineering students who is like their whole life has been robotics club and um, maybe sports. And then they're like, well, obviously, if you just give people numbers, it will change their minds. Like, I would love for that to be the truth. Um, but even if you just give them numbers about something that really goes against one of their core beliefs, then they kind of go, whoa, no, it's not. Um, and so it really is that we need to have these stories and I'm a big book nerd and I, I feel like we get so much empathy and we can really try on these different perspectives by reading more. So maybe reading more is also an answer that I would always say people should do. <laughs> Why? Well, I, I can get behind that advice. That's nice. I like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would warn you against reading The Turner Diaries, which is the big proud boy novel. That, but it's so successful because, you know, he told a story and it touched, like people could relate to it and it really tapped into some, some core beliefs. And instead of it just being like him talking about all these stats about why the government's bad or why Hillary Clinton is terrible or her emails or whatever, then it was like, this is my personal story and this is how I'm going to shape it so that it's relatable to you and you can really take it in and kind of help it shape your own worldview. Yeah, I guess I, I do, and this is my own bias showing, I do kind of think of books as changing people for the better, but I, it, you know, there are very successful right-wing books that I would argue have made society worse. I mean, Ayn Rand was very, very popular. Yep, I do. And, and she wrote fiction stories that were very compelling and people used for some very conservative economic ideologies. Well, I remember kind of thinking about the, the focus on youth and moral panics. When I was in high school, different places would offer you money as a student to write essays about Anne Rand. So there were like a bunch of different yes. essay competitions that I think were funded by conservative groups who asked you to read, you know, like Anthem and then write up your thoughts about it. And my thoughts were like, wow, she can't really write women characters for a woman. <laughs> Yes, no, that was yeah, like, you're trying to scrape together as much money as you can for, for going to undergrad. And there are all these spaces that are like, if you just read the Fountainhead and write an essay, then maybe you'll win this $500, you know, award. And I think that they really are driving a lot of people who need money to go to college to read these books. Oof. Well, maybe I'll start a, an opposing scholarship fund with like Howard Zinn. There you go. Like, read some bell hooks and yeah. maybe and write an essay. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things to really know about moral panics is that the life cycle of a moral panic is where you have all of these people who are very upset about something and they want the government to do something about it. Like, they're calling on politicians to fix it. And politicians, because we vote on them, are very responsive to if so many people are concerned about this, then we're gonna do something about it and we're gonna introduce a bill. And right now what we're seeing is, and I'm not saying we should not address right-wing terrorists in the US, but right now we see that Joe Biden has a defense against domestic terrorists bill that he's working on. Like he's called and said, I'm gonna make this. Um, and so that's, 
it's weird because it's like the opposite of the moral panic where you had all these people who were really scared of something and they came out and, you know, tried to overthrow the government. Um, and, but one thing that we do see is that you have more kind of authoritarian forms of control after a moral panic. Um, and this one is a little bit different because it was the people who were scared that did something that we are now going to get more authoritarian, um, authoritarian kind of control over um, these bills to kind of address them. Um, but what we know is that at the end of this, everybody in society gets the more authoritarian forms of control, not just the people that were othered or not just the people that we think are the ones who did something wrong, that the entire society clamps down a little bit more on people. Um, and so that's something that I think is really important to remember how moral panics feed into more control over people. Well, that's not good. <laughs> no. I know. And I'm not saying, and that's one of the things is like, I don't think that we should not, I mean, we should definitely be paying more attention to right-wing extremists in the U.S. Um, but I think what a lot of people are saying is we already have a lot of tools that we're using, especially on Black Lives Matter protesters and on um, like people protesting about water rights and all of these other kinds of causes. And we already have the infrastructure where you are arresting those people and you are surveilling those people. Um, and so we should use the tools we already have to focus on these right-wing extremists um, instead of kind of letting them get together and infiltrate and recruit. Um, and so making a more authoritarian form of control isn't necessarily the best thing to do for society. Yeah, well, and I think I'm, I'm not the first one to point this out, that typically when there's a right-wing threat, the U.S. introduces surveillance measures that disproportionately get used against the left who right. didn't participate in, in kind of violent terrorism. So that's a fun thing to watch for the 2020s. Um, yeah, I think that, I think that a lot of people are really scared of that. And, but I think that Joe Biden has a history of really liking these kinds of bills. Like he really loved the Patriot Act um, and he really likes to be hard on crime and it could be different, um, but I don't, I, I think all, all signs are showing to we are going to get some more strict control out of all of this. Mixed feelings about that. I know. I, I think we I really should be paying more attention to extremists. Um, but I also don't know that we need more surveillance to do it. Well, I, certainly not if they're going to post on social media. I mean, the FBI knew about that. I mean, journalists knew about anyone who was on Parler knew about these plans. So Right. I suppose more surveillance doesn't really make sense because that wasn't what the problem was. Right, right. Like what was the actual problem here? Um, but instead, if you're going to keep going for what well, in the past, what we've done is just put more money into more people watching more things and, you know, building up more of this technology. And then you're, then you're going to like send this out to all these local police departments that have been using it to track largely minority people. And it's just going to keep being harsher and harsher surveillance on the same people police have already been watching um, instead of the groups that we know are the biggest terror threat in the U.S. Well, that seems to be that seems to be kind of the constant with moral panics, where it's like a seesaw of things that's not a real problem creating a real problem. 
right? Because when you, when you clamp down on people, you create a problem. And then people are like, this is a troubling condition that we should be talking about. Um, and so you're always, that's the thing with social problems is they're always kind of like oscillating and people care about something and then they care about something else. Um, but I mean, if you're looking at how does this end up translating into more authority, more control, um, you can see, I mean, just looking at the U.S. from the 70s to now, how much more control do we see through things like the Patriot Act and how much more surveillance do we have? So at this point in the interview, Andrew walks in, so he's going to say hi. Oh, hello. Hi. That's fair. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. We've been talking about how the world is a great place and how looking at the future, everything's bright and shiny. There is absolutely no problem with Biden introducing anti-terror. No, no, it's fine. Uh, as, a, as a public defendant, let me tell you, I'm thrilled. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's going to rule. <laughs> you don't see any, like, there. nothing bad could happen from this, right? We're just going to, we're going to go after the bad people, and that's what's going to happen. Well, that's all that ever happens, is the only thing <laughs> that happens to people, no one, uh, no innocent people ever get wrapped up in, in moral crusades. Right? Oh, yeah. What about moral crusades? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's still, still going to court in person is, is still a weird feeling. Do they allow lots of people into the courtroom or is it just right? Well, me, and the, me and the client, that's it. A deputy who may or may not be wearing a mask. Mm. <laughs> well, that, I mean, oh my goodness. Sorry, that, that reminds me of, speaking of moral panics, so there was a headline that's trending that this year was the deadliest year for law enforcement, and when you click it, it's because COVID, because a lot right. of people died of COVID because they refused to wear their masks, right. but it implies heavily right. that police officers are being murdered. Yeah, yeah, that does. So that'll be fun to deal with. There's so many things I think I'm going to have to talk about in class that I'm not, I'm just trying to think about how I'm going to hedge all of these. Um, so Tom, actually, they went back, Clemson went back the first week of January. Wow. And I know he said that like the first day of class, he was already struggling with them even believing in survey data because they thought they feel like surveys are like the vote and that obviously people are playing with these and taking too many of them or that dead people are in the surveys and that they're inflating the numbers and so Tom was like how do you even deal with students not even believing in like there's lots that's wrong with surveys but this is a totally new area of disbelief that's coming in. Well, I think the most fascinating thing I've been dealing with is talking to people about, about things that happen that have been highly documented, and they just tell me, well, that can't be true. And I said, well, what, what do you think then? And they're like, well, if that's true, that's, just, that's too terrible to be true. I'm like, mm. okay, well, I don't, I don't know how to talk to you if you won't engage with things that make you scared or uncomfortable, because sometimes the world is scary and uncomfortable. Um, and the, these aren't my students. These are adults in my life. I mean, students are adults, but. I know, I know what you're saying, yeah. Uh, and, and so that's been fascinating because I'll be talking about different statistics or different uh, laws, like laws in the U.S. I'm like, well, that can't be true. And I'm like, no, that, that was true. That was a policy. You can, here's where you can look it up. Like, well, that just can't be true, though. And I'm like, oh, mm. okay. 
Um, you know, and this isn't, this isn't pure right wing. These are, these are people who would describe themselves as very liberal. Right. Um, you know, so it's, it's hard to get people who are even inclined to believe things, uh, to believe things that make them scared or uncomfortable. And it's, it's tough with climate data. It's tough with, right. um, extremists. It's, Maybe that's something we should have talked about, too, because we did talk so much about how the right, like, buys into these kind of moral panics, but I have actually defriended several very liberal people on social media because they are swinging fully into that whole foods and sunshine and positive vibes are going to cure COVID, um, that we don't need the vaccine, that the vaccine is just going to be something artificial that we're introducing into our bodies, that we don't, that's just going to make everybody sick or isn't actually going to do anything. That if we were just all eating the right foods and doing the right yoga poses, that we would be able to fight this off. Um, and so that, I feel like that, that panic about vaccines being this artificial thing that you're, you're kind of injecting into the populace is uh, also, I mean, a moral panic about, or there's, I mean, it's almost a moral crusade about vaccines at this point. And we've been scared of them for so long. Well, and I think, I think there's something interesting happening with the age of information where people feel like if they can't understand something, it's ununderstandable. Mm. Um, so like, I see this a lot with like the medical side of, of COVID uh, where people, because they don't understand it, they assume no one could. So people are just making things up. And it's, and I think it's been this like long road on, in America specifically of dismissing expertise of, mm -hmm. of anti-intellectualism. Um, and it's, it's really frustrating because, you know, I'll try to like explain some of the medical side. I'm not a medical doctor, but I, I read medical studies and they're like, well, that doesn't make sense to me. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know what to tell you because it does make sense. Right. Um, yeah, and the, the vaccine specifically has been really frustrating because people will say, well, if the vaccine's only 92% effective and COVID deaths are, are you know, 99% of people survive COVID, why get the vaccine? It's like, those are very different numbers. They tell you different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That idea that we're all experts now, we all have access to all the information. And so that means that all of us should be able to understand and be an expert in whatever we want to um, really does undermine for some people that know there are fields where you study for a really long time where there's specific things you need to know and you can't, you can't actually be an expert of everything. You need to defer to expertise too. Right. When I, I try to tell people that, that science is like learning a new language and I think a lot of people have the phonetic alphabet down so they can read out loud, but they don't know what they're saying. Right. Um, and, and so it's okay to have an interpreter. It's okay to like trust someone to, to mitigate that for you. And the media does a really bad job of that. The media is terrible at conveying science, but scientists are also really bad at talking to the media. So there's this huge gulf where we really do need science communicators. Um, and I think that's something that liberal arts can really help STEM majors do, is how do you communicate this information? How can you take these numbers and turn them into stories that actually help change people's minds? 
Yeah, and to, I mean, to plug a past episode, we, we interviewed someone who is a professional science communicator. So we have a whole episode on how science communication works and that it's its whole independent discipline. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think scientists take for granted that if their work is good, it should speak for itself, but they're used to talking to other scientists. And I think right. the public who feels like if you can read it online, then you are the expert. And, and there's, a, there's a step in between there where things can be interpreted a lot better. Yes, and misinterpreted sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's the other thing is I try to engage with misinformation as like, oh, we can just understand this better. But there there are actors who are actively trying to undermine the science. And that's that's hard. Right. There are a lot of faith actors. There and that is that's one of the reasons why I don't think we're ever gonna stop having moral panics, is because we are always gonna have these people who maybe aren't bad people, like inherently bad people, but have some reason for wanting people to be scared of something. They, they may somehow benefit from it, even if it's just keeping society looking the way that benefits them. And so we're all, I think we're always going to have people making, like pulling these triggering events into the consciousness and framing them in ways that make people really scared of something. Well, I think that's Alex's Alex Jones's whole business model is to create a panic and then create a product that goes with the panic. Right. Um, I think he sells vitamins now. Yes. I yes. think, oh, I just read that Alex Jones and Gwyneth Paltrow sell the same sex dust kind, oh, kind of stuff, but they, they call it different things. That. I was not ready for that. I just don't think dust is something you would want to introduce into that. I don't, I was, do you listen to the pod, um, the podcast maintenance phase? It's, uh, I mean, it's awesome. So there's like the podcast you're wrong about, and then they've kind of branched out into different podcasts. And so one of them is maintenance phase. And so they were talking about moon juice, which I've never heard of before, but it's this company that's a lot like goop. Um, and so they sell different dusts that are supposed to like do different things. <laughs> Things for your body. Uh, it's a really good podcast. I really like it. Um, she, the female co-host, Aubrey Gordon, just came out with this book, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. And it's so good. It does such a good job of showing all of these very individual instances where she's been discriminated against and how she feels as what she said she calls herself a very fat person um and so she's giving you all of these very personal anecdotes about her life but she's doing such a good job of tying it to structural and cultural factors and stats and pulling in different studies and it's excellent so I'm, I'm thinking about like reworking my intro class to feature this book because I just think wow. it's such a good way to to like exercise a sociological imagination when I think I think that's the best way to deal with data. I'm thinking about books like Evicted, where you get these really visceral like stories of real people, and then it's layered in with the actual statistics and the scale and the scope of the problem. And as a mixed methodologist, I, I think everyone should be doing mixed methodology. So 
I, I think you'd really like this book. And I think you're right about Evicted. I've been trying to decide, like, if I retool intro, and I know this has nothing to do with moral panics, um, <laughs> but, like, how would I retool intro to, because I'm just reading this book, and half of me is like, oh, my God, I have to teach this book. And half of me is like, I have to keep reading this book. Um, and so thinking about what I might want to assign and would summers, because I feel like, like students are always talk about the stories that you had in class too. Like they always talk about the documentaries that really touched them or um, like the articles that had the story that really touched them too. And so like having these, I don't know if they would be okay with having these kind of feature length books um, instead of a textbook. I think it's hard to tell. I feel like I always get a mix of students who love novels and, or not novels, but not every book is a novel. That's a PSA for, <laughs> for the students listening. Um, you know, full-length books, I always get mixed reviews on, mm -hmm. uh, but I also get mixed reviews on the articles I assign, so it's, it's always tough. Yeah. I do a mix of things, and usually there's, I do a mix of things that one student hates at least one type of media I assign. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were, I mean, we just opened this with trying to make a class that everybody likes is absolutely impossible, so trying to accommodate everyone, not like in the accommodations that you need to be able to access everything, like accessibility accommodations, but the accommodations and preferences and learning styles, it's just really hard to try to wrap all of them up in one course. Right. I mean, it's, it's like a chef's salad of information where like, there's definitely going to be one ingredient you hate, but there's probably going to be like two or three ingredients you don't hate. So... That's what some of you should just try because you haven't had yet. Yeah. I actually hate chef salads, so but I love teaching. Do you uh, hate them because they have all of that slimy meat on them? That's probably it. Yeah. That's probably it. They just feel very slimy to me. Well, I think the only time I had chef salad was in grade school cafeteria, so I imagine that was also a factor. Yeah. I think things as an adult, because I stopped eating meat at 12 that I don't like because I was introduced to the child version of it. Mm, yeah. No, I have been vegetarian for so long. I haven't had, but just the idea of sandwich meat just grosses me out so much. <laughs> the memory of it. Okay. Now we, we have that discussion quite a bit. Are, so are you a mixed um, omnivore vegetarian couple? My husband and I are too, are too yeah. It's always... I, I, love, I love sandwiches for lunch. He eats sandwiches, and yeah. I don't, I don't understand that. I don't pastrami. get it. I don't care for it. Ooh, did you say pastrami? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's my favorite. My favorite sandwich is a pastrami on rye. I don't get it. I do love rye bread. I will give you that. Yeah. I just, it looks like a cartoon lunch. Like, it's, it, they just look like little, like, I don't know. They're uncanny to me because I don't think I've like regularly eaten, eaten sandwiches since I was a child. I think because I grew up when carbs were evil. So like all through high school, I didn't eat bread. Right. Yeah. So the bread confuses me. The meat confuses me. <laughs> I don't know. I, don't I also grew up with carbs are evil, but I love them so much. I've come back around. They did. And well, I mean, you have a whole baking podcast, so obviously you are a very big fan of the carbs too. Back on, back on. The, well, okay. I don't want to, I don't want to take up your whole afternoon, but uh, is there anything I feel else? like you're going to have to do a lot of editing of this and I apologize for that. 
So we record with cats around us. So usually I have to take out like two minutes of just the cats fighting. So this is <laughs> much easier than that. Okay, cool. Uh, I locked my cat out because he loves Zoom because like he knows that I'm sitting here and I will have to be here for a little while and so he's like all up in the all up in it. I believe that. Yeah, we've got between the two of us we have three and they're little demons. That's that's a lot of cats in one space. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, it was not not thought out. <laughs> we independently collected them. That happens though. Well, uh, where can, where can people find your work? Um, <laughs> I don't have a website or anything oh. anymore. I stopped doing it after I was on the job market. So I'm not there. Uh, people can email me at lham at purdue.edu if they want to talk to me more about anything. Okay, great. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because we kind of run the gambit between people who have like a very like professional website to people who mostly use their Twitter handles to people who have their own podcasts. Right. Um, and then there's just me. I have a class. I have, the, <laughs> I have a class and that's kind of my outlet. <laughs> I mean, your audience is probably, you know, 10 times our audience. <laughs> <laughs> They're captive and they want those credits. Yeah. Well, who can blame them? No, I can't. I can't at all. So I just try to make it as useful for them as I can. Well, I, I feel safer for the next moral panic, knowing there are at least 400 students who are going to go through your training. Yes, I'm up to 650 a semester now. Oh, wow. Okay. I know, right? Every semester, we just add more. That's like the equivalent of my entire high school. That's Every semester, Linda's like, are you okay taking more students? And we sure, I mean, after 200 students, it's just, I don't know, as long as I have another TA to help me with emails, then let's just bring it on. Good, good for you. That yeah. is, um, <laughs> that's a hero mentality. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's insane. All I, right. I'm always like, 45, that's, that's 20 too many. No, I know, but like, so there, like, it, once you get over a certain threshold, it's like, eh, I mean, I'm not going to be able to do, like, after 100 students, you're kind of in lecture zone anyway, and like, lecture and small, but I can do the same lecture and small activities with 500 students that I can with 100 students, so, um, but if I, if, I mean, my dream class is, of course, like a 20-person seminar, but I kind of get that with Cornerstone, which is awesome. Yeah, that's, I, I like that initiative. I'm, I'm interested to see how it goes. I, uh, it's a new university, they're adopting it. Good. So yeah. for those of us who aren't uh, at Purdue, Cornerstone is a, a, a program that's like replacing intro to communication and intro to English with substantive courses that do some of the same things. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so it's, it's a whole certificate and it's to get a lot of these students who aren't majoring in liberal arts to have a little bit of a liberal arts experience while they're at Purdue. So um, they start off in these two classes. One focuses heavily on writing and one focuses heavily on like oral presentations. And I teach that one, but you also are really working with um, transformative texts. And so there's this list of authors where you choose your textbooks from. And so like Bell Hooks is on the list and Octavia Butler was recently put on the list. So I added Parable of the Sower to my class. And Orwell is of course on the list. Uh, and so 
so students are you're reading these texts in a group of 30 and doing um, they do presentations in my class and, and then they take they get to pick other liberal arts classes that they want and they get this cornerstone certificate that's awesome um and i think the idea is that it's it's taught by um by faculty versus grad students so that more more students are getting introduced to faculty early on it, right, right. And so it's supposed to be that you're getting introduced to faculty that you can take more classes with, um, that you can build mentor relationships with too. Yeah, and that, I mean, at a huge university like Purdue is, is so interesting to see. I, I'm very optimistic about that. Me too. I think it's, a, I really enjoy it. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, we were really excited to, to do this episode and I've had, you know, the great delight in, in working with you before and I've worked with uh, you as a TA for this social problems class. So it was fun to bring that full circle. It was, it was great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much.